most preachers I know, this is what they hold to. They hold to that God hates divorce. They preach against divorce. They think that it's not God's will. They'll present it that way. But they'll also say, but there are two particular occasions in which God allows for divorce to occur. And you're familiar with these. One, they would ultimately suggest that, that it is under, uh, during, uh, for adultery, when adultery occurs within the marriage, and they usually use Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 to be able to argue their point there. Uh, others would say that it is abandonment, that when somebody is abandoned by their spouse, then they're free to not only divorce, but also to remarry. And they usually use the passage of Paul's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to be able to argue that point. Now, I'm going to say there's a lot of different views. Even upon, among the elders here at Celebration, we differ and vary a little bit of our views on this and what we believe the Bible said. This is not a closed hand issue for us. It's an open hand. There is room for disagreement there. Uh, but the majority, I, I think for the most part, though, our elders here are on the same page. Uh, we just maybe differ a little bit in some of the application of how we take these truths and apply them. But we have to work that out together as a group of leaders here at this church. Now, let me say this. Uh, I have more of a conservative view than probably any of them, possibly. I'm not sure, but I think. Uh, and I am in the, the minority. And you know your pastor is always in the minority. You know that, right? Uh, I don't have to, I'm not telling you anything. Um, but I, I got to tell you this, that, that my particular stance and view... Um, I had to, when I approach this, and I'm not saying that others do, I respect other people's view, but what I'm asking you to do this morning is all of us come, because it's such a, a heated topic, such an emotionally charged topic, uh, we, people have either been divorced or they have suffered from a divorce or they have been divorced or somebody um, in their family has been divorced, and so we have all feel this thing, and I think we can all say that it's an icky, awful, very hard thing. Would we, would we agree? It's never really ultimately what God would want for any of us, certainly not a part of his divine plan. Uh, but what I would say to you is, and this is how I need you to hear, I need you to listen and take all of those emotions and all of the past and all, everything that you've kind of stored up, all that fiery emotion, and, and, and just place it aside a little bit. Just move it aside. And just listen to what the text of Scripture says. Just listen to what Jesus is teaching on this topic. Because I think you would agree, if you're, if you're here and you continue to go here, then I know something about you, and that's this. You would say, Brother Mike, it really doesn't matter what I believe or what you believe. What matters is what the text most clearly says. And whether I like it or don't like it or feel it or don't feel it or, or that's the way I brought up or not brought up, uh, I'm, re I, I'm willing and ready to discard all of that, okay? Um, I, I, I'm Southern Baptist, but, but if, if I ever find in those places that the Bible is different than what Southern Baptist and seminary and Southeastern and all that kind of stuff taught me, then I'm gonna, I have to cling to the word. And they, my professors, they would, they would say, do that. Okay, do that. So I'm just trying to get you there. So we want to exalt Christ and we want to submit to whatever it is that the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us. So let's jump right into this thing then. Let's begin by looking at verse 1. Verse 1 says this, it says, And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. The there, meaning he left there, is most likely referring to Capernaum. That's the last place that we heard of Jesus being. And so he's leaving Capernaum for the last time. And remember where he's going. He's, he's moving now beyond the region of Judea, and, or, 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 or to, to Judea, and then beyond the Jordan. For what purpose? To go to where? Jerusalem. Because it's in Jerusalem where he's going to die and where he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's, he's beelining to the cross. And so he's leaving there. And as he does, of course, crowds begin to gather as we've seen them do all the way through Mark. And as his, as his custom, as it was customary for him, he began to teach him. Now, a lot of the times we see him teaching in synagogues, but there are times that we see him teaching out in the open. There's so many people, and he begins to address them. And very typical of Mark here, it doesn't really tell us what he's teaching about, but in the midst of his teaching, uh, he's interrupted. Again, interrupted by the Pharisees. This isn't the first time they've done that. We've seen him do it again. And verse 2 simply says this, And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful? Can a man divorce his wife? Now, whenever we're reading a particular passage, we always want to keep in context. We always want to know what the other authors, especially in the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we always want to look at what they say about a particular 
passage because they have parallel passages. And what that means is they're sometimes they're telling the same exact story, but they're just telling them in a little bit different way. And what we find here is the question that Matthew records is a little bit different in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. In Matthew 19, 3, it says this. It says, they, they asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? And then they add this little, little phrase, for any cause. Now, I think that that's probably what Mark is trying to say. See, during that time, really divorce in the first century and for the Jews was universally accepted. The question was not whether it was okay to divorce or not. It was just universally accepted among them. It was viewed as okay. It was viewed as all right. So most likely, this is what Mark is trying to get to. In other words, okay, they're saying, hey, we believe that it's okay to divorce, but, but when is it permissible and when is it not permissible to be able to divorce your spouse? Now, understand something, that Pharisees aren't there trying to find out information. They're not disciples of Jesus. They're not sitting there and going, hey, Jesus, we're kind of having this debate. We really want to know what you think because set us right on this. That's not what's going on at all with the Pharisees. Instead, the Bible says that they're doing what? They're, they're trying to trap him. They've been at this for a while. They'll continue to do it. Back in chapter 8 and verse 11, you remember that they demanded of Jesus to perform a miraculous sign to prove that he's truly of God. Later in chapter 12 and verse 15, they'll try to trap him by asking him the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And now in this passage in chapter 10, they're asking him another question on a hot topic concerning the issue of divorce and remarriage. Now let me tell you, there's probably two ways in which they're seeking to trap Jesus. There's at least two ways. There's probably many, many more. But let me just share two of them if I can. This is what they could be thinking. First of all, in Matthew's account, by the time you get to Matthew chapter 19, this is the second time that Jesus has said the same thing on marriage and divorce. He had taught it the very first time, uh, really, uh, uh, in, during the Beatitudes, back in Matthew chapter 5, he had taught it. And so what they could be doing is they know that he taught it, they know his stance on it, and so they're, now they're trying to get him to publicly speak it again. Why? Because some scholars believe that he might be in the region in the area of Perea. Now, the reason that that's significant, I'm not sure how they come up with that, but they believe he might be in Perea here, and if he is, it is significant, because that would have been land that would have been under the control of Herod Antipas. Do you remember old Herod, good old King or, or Herod Antipas? Remember his sweet wife, Herodias? Remember that wonderful woman that sent out her only daughter, really, to, to really begin to dance this risque dance for her husband and for the party. Uh, then when they, he asked, he said it pleased him so much, he said, hey, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What would you like? And she said, tell him I want the head of John the Baptist. Remember that sweetheart, Herodias? Remember her? Well, if this was that land underneath his control, it could be that the disciples were trying to get Jesus to state his opinion. So that the same thing that happened to, to John the Baptist now is going to happen to him. That could be, that's one option. But there could be something else going on here, and that could be just that the, the, the Pharisees, being jealous of Jesus, wanted to be able to take some of that crowd away from Christ. During this particular time, there were two main rabbinic schools. The, the school of Shammai, which held a conservative view of divorce. Basically, what they held was this, is that divorce was okay and lawful, um, but only in the, in, in the, uh, um, uh, when somebody committed adultery within the marriage. Now, there's a more, this school of Hillel, which would have been a much more liberal view. They basically were like, listen, you can divorce your wife over anything. Dude, if she's got, you know, crazy bedhead in the morning, uh, divorce her. It doesn't make any difference. If she, if she burns your, if she burns your um, toaster strudel or whatever it is, um, you know, divorce her. It just doesn't make any difference. So one is more stringent. One is, is much more broad, but both of them allow for divorce to be able to occur. And so what they're hoping is by Jesus coming, because it was such a, a heated discussion and such a, such a divide between these two schools, he knows that if he can get him to answer this specific question, at least half of that group of people, half of that crowd are probably going to be against Jesus. Do you see that? That's where the trap might very well be. And so how does Jesus get uh, get out. Uh, how does he get out of this one? Well, what's interesting is they're trying to trick, and don't forget who it is that they're trying to trick. It's Jesus. It's the Son of God. It's um, uh, the guy that Paul describes as the one by whom and through whom and, and, and for whom all things were created, an all-knowing God who spoke creation into existence. He just spoke and it happened. Um, it's hard to trick a God like that, but they're going to go ahead and make an attempt, so good luck to it. And so they try to trick him, and so what happens? Well, they say to him, Jesus responds in typical Jesus fashion. He really answers a question by, uh, by asking a question. 
right? That's typical Jesus, right? So they ask him, you know, is it lawful or when is it lawful? He comes and he says this. He says, what did Moses command you? Now, what he's doing is he's taking them back to a teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verses 1 through 4 because this is where the Pharisees believe that the Bible taught in the Torah, in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, where they taught that divorce was okay to do. So they're saying, hey, listen, we're going to go back. So they're going back. So Jesus is, in essence, saying, hey, what did the Bible command? What did Moses command you to do? And Jesus is going to take them back to the place where he is going to teach them that they made a mistake. They're taking them back to where Moses said, and then here's how they respond. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. In verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. He's correcting them over a misunderstanding that they've applied to the text of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So what is he saying? Well, Moses did. When you look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, you do see that he did say, when, when or if you divorce your spouse, men, you must give her a certificate of divorce. You must do it. It's the law. Now, why would he have her give a, a certificate of divorce? Remember, they lived in a male-dominated world. The woman had absolutely no rights whatsoever. Okay, so you guys tracking? You guys get that, right? And so no, no, no rights whatsoever. So if these men were to divorce them, basically they were shunning them out and pushing them out in abject poverty. They could starve. Their children could starve. It was a very difficult thing. They would be viewed as a divorced woman. Nobody would want to have anything to do with her for the most part. And so what this certificate would do is, number one, it would slow down the man, the hot-headed man, and keep him from some hasty decision, right? He's like, man, you burn my toaster strudel. Get out. Get out. And all of a sudden, he's like, well, you got to go through all this paperwork, and you got to do everything. And by then, he's like, well, maybe a strudel's not really all that important. Maybe I don't need to kick her out. Okay, honey, come on, let's get back together. So that would bring some protection. The other protection would be this, is it would also provide a level of dignity for the woman. When he writes down, when he writes the certificate, he has to, in essence, say, this is why I'm divorcing you. And to be able to say I divorced her because she permed her hair after 20 years and I don't like the way that it looks, then at least then she could sit there and people would look and say, well, she, she wasn't unfaithful. She, she wasn't anything. He just didn't like her hair. So the reflection would go back on him more than it would ultimately go back on her. And so it provided some kind of dignity. So the mistake that the Pharisees were ultimately making is this, is Moses' command of the certificate of divorce, they viewed it as the approval of divorce rather than a safeguard to protect the innocent woman. In other words, what he's saying is, he says, hey, they just told us, hey, it's okay. And Jesus says, when did he say okay? He didn't say that it was okay. He said, the reason that he's even given you this is because your hearts are so sinful and so far away from God and his will that you are seeking to divorce this woman. I'm only giving you this. I'm only telling you and commanding you to do this because of the hardness of your heart in order to be able to lessen the destructive results of your own sinful hearts and keep from shattering the lives of those who might be innocent. And so Jesus tells him, and he says, but, but, see, th- this is huge. These buts there, I, I, I don't want to, in the first service I said the big buts, and I, I don't want to say that. These buts, B-U-T in the, in the text of scripture, a lot of things hinge on this. Because what Jesus is going to say is he says, listen, this is where you made your mistake. He goes, now let's look at where you really need to go to understand my answer on this. And he says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now catch this, Jesus is correcting a whole lot more than just their view on divorce and remarriage. He's correcting their view on women. They are thinking women have no rights, they're secondary, they're more like a piece of property, and Jesus is saying, oh, my friend, you've got it all wrong. Jesus exalts the woman, and he says, when God created man, when God created men, he created them male and female. He's, she, he's in essence saying, they're on the same level as you, same worth as you, same value as you. They may have different roles, but they are complementarian to each other. They have the same value and worth of one another. So he exalts the woman. Now, why is he going back to the beginning? Because in the beginning where God creates and gives people what? It's where he creates the institution of marriage. So he's going back, and because God created marriage, what is God given? Finish this with me. What is God given must also be God what? Governed. What is God given must also be God governed. God creates this and says, okay, now this is the way that you govern this. Here's food. Don't eat it until you become obese and you kill yourself on food, all right? 
here's, here's drink, drink, but not this, you know, this, this getting drunk with wine. You, you, what I give you, here's sexual fulfillment, but don't do it outside of my commands. I'm going to tell you how you do these things. They're gifts from me to you, but you've got to learn how to, to work within these things in a way that pleases me and brings me glory. And so he's doing the same thing here. He, he comes and he, he's elevating the woman. He, he, he's bringing them back to the beginning. He's telling them it was given by God. And then now what he's going to do is he's going to ultimately tell them how it's supposed to function. Now, let me tell you what Jesus is doing. The Jewish divorce policy here made the man the Lord over the marital relationship. But what Jesus is about to do is Jesus taught that neither man nor woman controls marriage, but rather God, who is the Lord and the creator over marriage. So if God created it, then God should be able to suggest when it ends and when it does not end, when it can be over and when it does not, when it is not to be over. Would you agree with that? And so here he brings them and he begins to quote from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's just quoting back there. Now, now catch the picture. And he says, so they no longer two, but they are one. You probably have heard this, right? If you got married, the minister probably said this to you, probably taught this particular passage to you. So the two become one. Let me, let me explain something. This is just not poetic language. This is a description of something supernaturally that happens when you say, I do. When the two come together and consummate the marriage, God is literally is taking those two people and they are, he is weaving the fabrics of those, two's, those two people's identities together, their personalities together. Have you ever seen this? It's kind of like when people are married for a long period of time, they even start looking alike. Have you ever, you know, you're like, man, you guys look totally different here, but now you kind of, whoa, what, you know, what's happening, right? I remember some people, I remember one young lady sit there and go, I just broke up with my fiance. I said, why? She goes, I was losing my identity. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I, it just felt like I was like, becoming something else. I'm like, you do know that that's what happens in marriage, right? You, the two become one. And God wants it for you to become better because you have a lot of annoying things that you do. And when God sends you into that other person, they let you know that it's annoying, right? And so what happens is they begin, you begin to become, God uses that to be able to bring a sense of holiness to your life and change you in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, and so he says, listen, the two, he says the two become one flesh. And so understand this is one flesh. People sit there and go, I've never been th through anything more painful than a divorce. If you've been through a divorce, you understand that. It is painful. It's painful for you. It's painful for everybody around you. It's painful for the children. It's hard. It's difficult. Why? Why, why is it so painful? Well, if you had your body ripped apart, would that be painful? Yes. The two become one. When you take that which is one and you begin to pull it apart, it's painful. That's why it's so painful. And so here he says and says, why though? So his, his ultimate, now understand what he says here. Remember what the question is. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? More specifically, under what circumstances can a man divorce his wife? He says, listen, follow me. He says, he says basically, where are you getting this? And he says, well, Moses said back here, give it a certificate of divorce. And he says, listen, you got that all wrong. He wasn't giving you permission to get a divorce. He goes, the reason you divorced was because of the hardness of your heart. We need to go back to the beginning to where I created this marriage. Remember, the one who's speaking this is the one who created it. So Jesus goes back to the creation account, and he says, this is my will. Then notice how he says at the end, he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That's Jesus' answer. What did Jesus just say? What did he say when they said, is it permissible for a man to divorce? What, what, what did he say? Yes or no? He said no. I mean, is, is that clear in the text of Scripture? I mean, it's pretty clear, right? Are you guys, you do not want to commit because you're afraid? All right, somebody, hey, I don't know this guy. I don't know who he is. You know, no, I mean, do you guys, you guys get that, right? I mean, is, is it clear in the text? Of, I'm just asking you. We'll, we'll get to you know, the other accounts and everything, but right here, is Jesus saying, yes, it's okay, or no, it is not okay to divorce? He's saying no, correct? Say amen if he's saying no. All right. If you think he's saying yes, say amen. No, I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> Sometimes I am four years old. All right, here we go. But why? Why does he do this? Why does he do this? 
Why does he bring this together? Why is, why is God in his creation of marriage? Listen, why does he sit there and say, these two are gonna come together and it's my will that they remain married until death do them part. Until they die, they must stay together. To understand that, we have to, and if you've been in this church for a while, you know this because we've preached it time and time again. It's because of his purpose of marriage. It's purpose of marriage. And where do we see that purpose of marriage? I ask all the young couples that we marry, they'll, they'll tell you right here, the ones that I've married, I'll sit there and go, why are you getting married? And here's, here's usually how it is. Man, she makes me happy. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> All right. All right. It's, it's physical attraction, right? It's, uh, and I'm like, well, yeah. That, good luck with that as well when you're like 98 years old. All right, good luck with that. And they're like, they're like uh, because he makes me happy or, or, or because of love, we love each other. I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. Dumb, but sweet, you know? <laughs> And then they go through and they lift all these other things. And I'm sitting there and go, brother, I'm telling you that all these things are great and all these things are a blessing. But none of them are the true foundation of marriage, nor God's purpose of marriage. Your purpose of marriage is found in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32. There Paul is speaking about marriage. He's telling everybody what's, what, what's going on, uh, what the roles of the woman is, what the role of the man is. And then he says in verse five, chapter 5, verse 32, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. You've heard this before, but really let this grip you and where you are and understand. Get this, let this sink into your heart. He says, your job as a husband and your job as a wife is for you two to be able to come together. And your sole, ultimate purpose of that marriage is not childbearing, that is a part of it, not loving each other, hey, that is a part, but what it is is for you to demonstrate what it looks like to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, what you're supposed to be modeling is you're supposed to be modeling what it's like for the church to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is supposed to demonstrate an unbreakable, grace-saturated, covenant relationship that Christ has with his church. Now go and live that out in such a way that people sit there and go, wow, that's what it's like to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ? That's what it looks like to be with him? It's, it's one of forgiveness it's one of mercy. It's one of continual grace. It's forgiving and forbearing and helping yourself to come along and be more like Jesus Christ. And the answer of that is yes. That's what it's about. That's the purpose. So what Jesus says is, because this is my purpose, you can't break it. If you break it, you do harm to the picture of the gospel message. Is there anything that you can do as a true child of God to be able to jettison your relationship with Jesus Christ? No, because he holds you. He has sealed you until the day of redemption. Now, I'm not talking about those who stray and fall away from the faith. First John tells us that they were never in the faith. They would have remained with us, but they don't remain with us because they were never truly a part of us. But those to whom God truly is saves, that he has elected, that he has called, that he has drawn, that he has regenerated within their heart, and he has made their child, there's no way out of that. He won't let you go. Do you agree? Say Amen. And he says, and this is my purpose for you in marriage. It gets rocky. Well, you know what? It gets rocky in my life towards Jesus. Some incredible sins towards me, towards Jesus. And he says, this is why you uphold this. So here in the text of Scripture, Mark, we're all agreed. He sits there and he says, listen, what God has put together, let no man separate. End of deal. That's your answer. It should be no divorce. Now, I know some of you are saying, because of your wicked and hearts full of guile, mistrust, loathing, hatred, self-centeredness. You're saying, listen, I haven't heard anything you say because I want to get to the exception clause, right? Right, isn't that how some of you are thinking? So, I mean, I mean honestly, same people are like, yeah, but wait until he gets to the exception clause. Here it comes. I don't really care about what our role is, but the exception clause, bring it on, come on. That's where we are. There's my vindication, the exception clause, all right? And some of you are going, I don't, what's this exception clause? All right, well, we're gonna get to that. What is this exception clause in which he refers to? Well, that's over in Matthew chapter 9, in, or excuse me, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5 in verses, and chapter um, 19. Go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 19. He first teaches it in 5, but then he begins to unpack it more in chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Now, if you were to follow that through, and we don't have time for it, if we were to follow it through, it's almost the exact same conversation that he has in Mark's, almost exact, almost word for word. They just track through that thing exactly the same. And Jesus says at the end of that one too, he says, what God has put together, let no man separate. And then Jesus takes them apart, or takes, takes them aside, and then he says this, and he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, now here's the key, underline this, mark this, 
in your Bibles, if you're going to ever explain this or come back to me and write a dirty letter, you need to know where I'm getting this, okay? All right, here it is. He says, except for sexual immorality. Let me read it again. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality. Do you see that? So what we do and what people say is there's the exception clause. He's making an exception for those who are in marriage. And then it goes on and says, and marries another, he commits adultery. What they do is they interpret except for sexual immorality. They'll say, see, that's adultery. If a person commits adultery in the marriage, then that one flesh union bond is broken by God. And now they're free to be able to go out and to be able to remarry. Now, what I want you to understand is this. This is, in, in Matthew, Matthew's the only one that provides the exception clause. Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. It is not found in Mark chapter 10, was it? No. It's not found in Luke chapter 16. Just take my word for it. Go look it up later. Okay, it's not found there either. And it's not found in 1 Corinthians, even the teaching by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The exception clause is nowhere to be found. Now, let's just be honest. It doesn't have to say it in every passage for it to be true. Would you agree? It only has to say it once. But when there are many passages teaching the same thing, quoting the same thing, but yet a very vital part of it is left out in Mark and in Luke, then those are things to make you go, hmm, why is he not including this in the other passages? Now, remember, I teach you this all the time. Context is king, right? So who are they writing to? And I believe it has, the, the distinction is ultimately found in who they are writing to. And what he's, what he's saying is this, is that Matthew added that phrase, except for sexual immorality, because it, it meant something to the Jews to whom Matthew was writing, and it meant nothing to the Greeks and to the Romans to whom Mark and Luke were writing. Does that make sense? In other words, if you're writing a group of Jewish people, there may be things about the Gentile world that you have to explain to the Jews because they don't get it because they're not Gentiles. And when you're writing to the Gentiles or Romans, there might be something that you have to explain over here to the Jew, uh, about the Judaism that you don't have to explain to the Jews. Would you agree about that? And so what's happening here is, let me, let me point out two things. First of all, he doesn't use the word adultery. We assume he's speaking of adultery. The word here that he uses is not, uh, is not the word normally for adultery, but rather he uses the word pornea. Pornea literally just means, and as it translated in the ESV, is, is, is sexual immorality or fornication. Now that fornication is important because fornication, and that's literally what the word means, you, fornication does not take part within a marriage. It takes part outside of a marriage. It's two people who aren't married. When they come together and they have sexual relationships, you don't call that adultery. Why? Because they're not married. What do you call that? You call that fornication. Does that make sense? So this is key to understanding the text. Because if he had meant adultery except for the case of adultery, the question is, why doesn't he just use the word adultery? You say, well, he didn't understand the word. He didn't know the word. Then why did he use it at the end of the sentence? Commits adultery. He uses a different word, pornea. It's a broader term, but it doesn't deal with people in the marriage. It deals more with the people outside of the marriage. Now, let me explain what's going on here. I believe what he's talking about is what's known as the betrothal period. Y'all still with me? Or should I just walk off now and just leave you hanging? Okay, all right. So it's what they call the betrothal period. It's, it's, you know how you get engaged? You're so excited. You get, so they get down on their knees. Will you marry me? You know, I did this with my wife. I got to say, I t- took her out to the beach. I picked this place. I thought it was really romantic. You kind of have this light or whatever. And I went down, I de- you know, kneeled down, you know, and said, would you marry me? And then I realized all of a sudden, because it was dark, there was like two trash cans heaping with trash right over to the s- side of me. And I'm like, wow, maybe I should have picked a different location. So anyway, so I said, would you marry me? She says, yes. And you're all schmoopy, whoopy about each other. You're all excited. And what do you say? We're engaged. We're engaged. Everybody, for the most part, is excited for you, right? Except for like, you know, half of Nassau County because my wife was no longer available. And I'm like, <laughs> sucker. You know, and so, so you get in. And so what you are is you're engaged, right? And so you go around. And as soon as you get engaged, you go around going, hey, I want you to meet my wife, Larissa. They're like, what? No, you sit there and say, hey, this is my fiance. It's my fiance, Larissa, and this is my fiance, Mike, right? And so we're going to be getting married. When are you going to get married? We're going to get in the future. So you have this kind of, you, you, you with, stop laughing. All right, so you, you're, you're working through this. So you have this engagement period. Are you all with me so far? Okay, and then finally, there is a wedding. And then 
there is the marriage, and every day, then you leave, and then you know what happens after that, okay? Then, yeah, okay, so we, we, we work through that. And so you come together, and you are one in the eyes of Christ. Okay, so they have something very similar to the engagement process, but it's called the betrothal process, which is just much more defining. It's much more law-abiding. And what I mean by that is this. Remember, they didn't marry for love. We, we talked about this in Mark. Basically, it's like, hey, listen, um, I've got this girl, and you've got this boy, and you said he's really not worth much, and I can't do with much, much with my daughter. Hey, let, why don't we just kind of hook them up together? That sounds good. Do they know each other? No, it doesn't matter. Let's just put them together, and it will help me financially. You know, you own, you own the Jiffy store, the 7-Eleven. You know, I own the, the hardware store down here. You know, I might, you, you can give me Slurpees, and I'll give you some free wood when you need to fix something over there. Sounds like a great match. Okay, good. Here's my daughter. Here's my son. Put them together. And so oftentimes, money had to exchange hands. And it usually wasn't money. It was more like, hey, listen, okay, uh, you're giving me your daughter. Here's my daughter. Here's five sheep, okay? And, you know, the guy sits there and goes, man, dude, if I'm going to take her. It's got to be a ten-sheep woman. All right, you're just going to have to give me more sheep. So here's the 10 sheep, here you go, take the, take the woman, here's the 10 sheep. And you're like, okay, I think that's a fair dare. Well, what happens is, at the parents agree, they don't really sign something, but when they agree, that is a binding contract between the two. It, it's on. And what they say is, they then begin to refer to each other as husband and wife. Now, they haven't consummated the marriage yet. That doesn't come until about a year later. And then at the marriage night, they consummate the marriage. And then that's when they become fully man and woman. Let me tell you what's happened here. When he says, except for pornea, except for, uh, except for sexual immorality, I believe he's referring to the betrothal period. I believe what he's saying to the Jews, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have made any sense to the Gentiles. It wouldn't have made any sense to the Romans. What he's saying to them, he says, listen, I tell you, if anybody divorces his wife, except for in the midst of the betrothal period, because in the betrothal period, if one of them were to break that bond, they would literally have to go and get it legally, get a legal divorce. So they used the term legal divorce during the betrothal period, but they didn't use the, 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 the phrase, they didn't use the phrase as far as being, you know, and they would call it uh, husband and wife, but they wouldn't use the word adultery. They wouldn't use the word adultery until after the marriage was consummated. Before the marriage was consummated, they would use the word fornication. Does that make sense? And so what's happening here is uh, Jesus is ultimately, he's just basically telling him, hey, guys, and wouldn't that make sense? If you're a Jewish person sitting back going, well, wait a minute, one of your immediate questions would be, well, what about, what about the betrothal period? The law says that we're allowed to be able to divorce a person at such. And, and he just cuts it off, and he says, listen, except for pornea, except for during the betrothal period. He goes, if you, if, if you divorce and marry somebody else, it is, it is wrong, and it is also um, you're committing adultery. Now, do we see any emphasis, uh, any examples of this in the Word of God? We do. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Open that up real quick. You need to look at this. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Here it says this. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now notice. When his mother Mary had been, what? Betrothed. Betrothed to Joseph. Okay? You understand the betrothal period, right? Now, have they consummated the marriage? No, because it says before they came together. All right, they're in the betrothal period. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So understand this. They're in that contractual deal. They're contractually husband and wife, but they haven't come together. They're not fully married because they haven't had, uh, they haven't had the wedding itself, and they haven't come together and consummated it yet. And so, what, so, so, um, so Joseph finds himself in a really sticky uh, position. He finds out that in this position, he knows that he hasn't been with her, but yet he finds out that she's with child. So what does he do? And it says, and her husband being a just man. Now, what does that mean? Being a just man means he's a law follower. So he is going to get a divorce from his wife because it's lawful for him to be able to do so during the betrothal period. And then notice the next part, but he was unwilling to put her to shame. So he resolved to divorce her quietly. Do you see he's using the word divorce? He's using the word divorce. Why? Because divorce was the correct word to use, the breaking of that bond together, even during the betrothal period. And so what we have is we have an example of it right here with Mary and Joseph, the same exact thing that Jesus gives the exception clause on. And wouldn't it make sense that Matthew writing to a Jewish group would give that exception clause and explain that? And then wouldn't it be clear why Luke doesn't use it, Mark doesn't use it, Paul doesn't use it? Because it absolutely has no bearing on the people to whom they're ultimately writing. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says no to divorce. But now look at verse 10. What about remarriage? Verse 10. 
And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Those are very stern, straightforward, hard words. But we have another exception too. As a matter of fact, this is the same thing the rest of Scripture says. Luke 17, 18. Let me read that to you. It says, everyone... Uh, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Is that not clear? Is that not clear in the text of Scripture? I mean, I, I don't know else how to argue it. It's just, it's just what the Bible is teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 says this. To the married, now this is Paul writing. He says, to the married, oh, open up to 1 Corinthians 7 if you would, because you're going to need this as well as you begin to, um, again, facilitate your attack on your pastor and uh, Got to put it in your email, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. He says this. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Now, don't get excited. I'm sitting there going, see, Paul didn't say it. The Lord said it. Well, what he's saying is this, this wasn't original teaching for me. This is the teaching of Jesus. This is the same teaching that he's been doing in all these books. It's being quoted by Matthew and Mark and, and Luke. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. Is that clear? But if she does, because of the hardness of her heart, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Why? Because she commits adultery, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay? So we're clear. No divorce. Not only Jesus, but also Paul. He's teaching this now. Now let's look at one more section here in verse 12 through 16. All right, here is where the second uh, time that people say, not only because of adultery, but also because of abandonment. If you're abandoned, then you're allowed to divorce. Well, let's deal with that, and let's see what this text is saying. He says here, he says, uh, he, says um, he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, he's not suggesting that this isn't binding. This is the scripture. He's being moved by the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write these words. They're binding on us. He's just saying, Jesus didn't teach this, but I teach this underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That if any brother, that means a believer, has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Let me give you the context very quickly. What he's doing is he's, if you go up several verses, all he's doing is giving different teachings on marriage. He starts with the single women, and he goes, single women, it's best for you not even to marry, but for you to basically be married to Jesus and for you to be able to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes, but if you burn with passion, get married. All right, got that? He says the same exact thing to the widows he then discussed. He says, hey, widows. He goes, it's better. You're legally able to get married. Why? Because your spouse has died. He goes, it's better for you not to marry, but if you are going to burn with passion, it's better for you to get married. After that, he just teaches the same exact teaching. You ought not to divorce your spouse. And he's talking to two believers. Hey, believing man, don't divorce your believing spouse. Believing spouse, don't divorce your believing husband. Now he comes to the next group of people. Jesus understands, or Paul understands, that, that sometimes there's two people in a marriage and one of them gets saved. Some of you here understand what that means. One of you gets saved and the other does not. When the gospel, when you mess up their life by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and their whole life is turned upside down, then all of a sudden they become a believer and sometimes they're married to an unbeliever. So now he's having to instruct, what do, what, what do we do in the midst of this, Paul? And he says, to the rest I say, not I, but the Lord. He says, that if my brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Here's what he's just simply saying. He's saying, listen, if they still want to be married with you and they're not... They're not throwing you out on the trash heap, which many times happen in that pagan culture. He says, then stay married with them. He goes, because the good thing is, by them, it's to all advantage to your unbelieving spouse. Because why? Because they're going to hear the gospel, and they're going to see it lived out in you. It's for their advantage. It even has some advantage, as he says here, refers to, to your children. But then notice verse 15. He says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now, let me tell you what happens. All that clear teaching of Jesus that says you should not divorce and you should not remarry, and if you do, you commit adultery. All of that clearness in there. You see that? It's, it's, it, it's clear. All that. People will take this one sentence and say, 
this is going to usurp all the clear teaching of Jesus Christ. That's not right. That's not being honest with the text. So what does he say? He says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. You know what he's saying? Don't fight it. He even says in just a couple of minutes, he says down there, he says, because you were called to peace. He says, don't sit there and get all riled up and say, no, 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 no. Listen, I, I got to make sure that this marriage works. He says, just let him go. He let him go. And then notice this very encouraging word next. He says, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now, people will sit back and say, hey, that frees them up for the divorce. They can get remarried. It doesn't say that. It says that they're just not enslaved. What does it mean? Well, I think it means in context is, hey, hey, and this is so encouraging to some of you. Some of you try to do everything. You came to faith in Jesus Christ. You try to do everything you could to make that marriage work. And there's one thing that I've learned personally with my family. And my brother dealt with this. He was married three times, divorced twice. And my brother, man, he had a heavy heart because of his two failed marriages. He felt like a second-class citizen. He felt low as all get out. He felt like just, he felt horrible that he couldn't somehow make it work. And what he's ultimately saying is, I said, brother, I said, the big mistake you made was that you married people that weren't unbelievers, that were unbelievers. I said, man, let them go. Just let them go. The guilt is not against you because of this. The guilt is on their head. You don't have to travel around for the rest of your life trying to make this thing work. Paul just says, let them go. Why? Because he says, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You just don't know if they're going to come to faith in Jesus Christ at all. They may continue to hate you because they hate God. Just let them go. So what is the scripture saying? I think the scripture is just abundantly clear. And let me, let me just tell you this. I struggle with this because I have more questions about the rapture than I do about marriage and divorce. I'm just telling you, I got more questions about it. Because that, I mean, you got things going on all over the place. To me, for, for whatever reason, this just seems to be so clear to me. It's okay if you disagree. But to me, it just seems like what the text is just clearly saying. Jesus is saying, because of the purpose of my marriage, no divorce for you. And because of the purpose of my marriage, and you're supposed to continue that marriage bond. He says there, he says, you should not remarry because if you remarry, you've caused... You've caused that person to commit yourself and that person that you remarried to commit adultery. So where do we go with this? God's purpose for marriage is, for that, is, is so that the couple is to demonstrate, to live out the unbreakable covenant bond between Christ and the church. We are never to seek divorce. Even if a divorce has occurred, remarriage is a prohibition. Let me go through two immediate questions that are going to rise, be raised here. And i got to go quickly. What about the, the case of physical abuse? Because this is the thing that people immediately go to. Every time you say my stance, what about physical abuse? Okay, well, physical abuse is awful, terrible, horrible. There's no excuse for it. For a more powerful man to be able to take advantage of his wife, there is wickedness, great wickedness in his heart. And how do we, what do we say towards that? We say get out and get safe. If that's where you are right now, get out of the house. We will help you. We will go to the authorities with you. We will walk through this with you. We will get your church body to walk along, and we will help you with the biblical principles to be able to walk through to make sure you and your children are safe and he ne that scumbag never lays another hand on you. We will walk through with you. So some people might be sitting here today and say, Brother Mike, you know, a pastor counseled me, and he said it was okay for me to go ahead and get remarried. And said, well, let me just tell you this. That may be the case, and I respect that pastor. You should respect that pastor. I disagree with the text, but you can't hold that pastor responsible. You're accountable for knowing the word of God. And you will stand accountable for knowing the word of God by yourself, even apart from your preacher. And so what I would say is this, the person says, but now when I'm looking through the word of God, I see more and more that divorce is not a part of what God desires. And so what happens, he says, he says there, he says to he says, so, so does this mean, this is where they come, does this mean that we are guilty of the sin of adultery because we divorced our spouse and remarried each other? The clearest biblical answer for that is yes. That you've committed adultery by marrying somebody after you divorce. It's just the, I don't know, I don't know how else to get around it. I don't take any joy of that. I don't take a joy of any time of exposing sin in our hearts. It's just simply what the word of God says, committed adultery. Now, the question that's always asked is, what do we do? Are we going to continue in a state of adultery for the rest of our life? And this is what I say. Listen, there's no sin that Jesus won't forgive. There's no sin that Jesus won't restore you in. So if you've committed adultery, you know what you do? 
You seek forgiveness of God. You go to him and say, God, I've been wrong on this. I committed adultery, and me and my husband, we come to you, and we, 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 we profess, or we confess our sin, that we should have never done this from the clear teaching of the word of God. And you know what God will do? He'll forgive you, he'll restore you, and he'll even lead you and even bless that marriage. And you know why? Because he's a good God. You know what oftentimes that I often hear? This is what I hear. And this is, this is a bit repugnant for me, but I understand. Some people will come after a divorce and remarriage, and they'll come and they'll say, I know that God brought this person to me. Wrong. If you were divorced and you got remarried, as wonderful as he or she may be, God did not bring you to that person because God is not the author of sin. Do you understand? But it turned out so well. For every good story, I can give you nine stories that are absolute hell that people even in this place now are living because they remarried and they said if we had to do it again, we'd never do it again. Let me ask you a question. What part of remarriage, for the most part, seems to be right to you? Is it that two families are being forced together? If you've ever had a mixed family, does that ever go easy? Oh man, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. No, it's hard. It's difficult. There's all kinds of pain. There's all kinds of trials. There's all kinds of difficulties in which you're going through. Why? Because it was never intended for that to happen. And it's the result, I believe, of the consequence of sin and going against what the clear teaching of the word of God is. Now, here's the great thing. When people say, but why is it so good now? It's so good not because you're good, but because God's good. And isn't that a demonstration of grace? It's a demonstration of grace that even when I'm rebellious and disobey him, God still bestows more grace upon grace. What a perfect picture of, of what? Of the gospel, but what a perfect picture of what and how I should function within a marriage relationship. Whatever they do, I love, I pour out. Why? Because the, the grace that I receive, I now just bend outwardly to my spouse. That's to be the picture. Three things, let me close with this. If it teaches us anything, it teaches us three things. First of all, it teaches us how important it is to marry a godly man or woman. Now, let me rephrase this. I'm tired of this Christian talk. Oh, he married a Christian. <laughs> so he's a mass murderer, right? Yeah. I mean, because everybody's a Christian, yes? Right? Everybody's a Christian here for the most part where we are. That that's cannot be good enough anymore. Because let me tell you what's going to happen. The kids in church are not in church, or hey, I need to get back in church. Little girl thinks he's great. She's excited about Jesus. She goes and gets this boy. All of a sudden, he becomes excited about Jesus. Why? Not because he's excited about Jesus, because he's excited about her. He'll pick up a Bible. He'll even read the thing if he has to, all to be able to marry this girl because she's hot. You guys have lived this. You get married. All of a sudden, he doesn't want a whole lot to do with God anymore. You deceived yourself. This is what you need to look for. You need to look for a person who's not looking for a spouse. You look for a man, ladies, you look for a man. Man, he's moving and grooving, loving Jesus. He's fine if he never gets married. He wants to, but he's moving and grooving. He's loving Jesus. He's living for Jesus. He's studying about his word. He's seeking. He's telling people about Jesus Christ. He wants to be a godly man. That's the guy you go after. Guys, same with the girl. No missionary dating. Biblically, it's, it's, it's not, you're not supposed to be doing it. Be not unequally yoked with an unbeliever. The Bible expressly tells us not to do it, but this is what you want to do. Guys, you want to find that woman that sits there and doesn't need a man because she has one. Man, she loves Jesus. You may come and go, and that may be great. Her desire might be to be able to be married, and she might even somehow be attracted to you by the mercy, mercy and grace of God. But guess what? You want to find that woman that sits there and goes, man, with me or without me, she's going to pursue the person of Jesus Christ. Second thing, it teaches us how desperately we need to know and to live out this truth of God's purpose for marriage in our life right now. Men and women, I don't know what's going on in your marriage. I don't know what it is, but bend out the grace, bend out the mercy. You sit there, I don't know if I can believe them. I don't know if I can forgive them. How much have you been forgiven by Jesus? Un. You, you can't count the ways. You can't count the number of times. He's bestowed grace upon grace. And isn't it so funny? God, give me grace, give me grace, give me grace. This is the kind of relationship I want to be with you. No grace. Because that's not my purpose, grace. Third, it teaches us, and Ben, I want you to come right now. It teaches us 
how amazing God's love is for us. Let me tell you something. You say, Brother Mike, I've been divorced. I want to give you a warning. Just listen to this. You said, I've been divorced. I've repented of it. It's done, man. It's done. You're forgiven. God loves you. It, your, your, your slate is clean. There will be, as always is, there may be some very serious consequences because of our sinful action. That's just, that's just the world in which we live. But your sin is forgiven. You are restored. That is love. You committed adultery. He loves you. You know what? I'll remind the rest of us that might be a little pompous here. Jesus even raises the level and says, if you even look on a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And let me say this. I know that there are a lot of people here who are sitting in your life, and this is, this is probably the biggest thing that I struggle with. You mean to tell me, Brother Mike, that me, for me, I'm, I'm single, and I'm, a young, I'm not even that old. I'm in my 20s, I'm in my 30s, and I've been divorced, that I can't remarry again? You still have a purpose to remain faithful to your vow. Even if the other person is unfaithful, you can still be faithful by sitting there and saying, my relationship, I still hold to the purpose of my original marriage, and that is this, to demonstrate the unbreakable relationship between Christ and his church. You sit there and you go, that is hard. Do you know what the disciples said over in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 10? When Jesus said, he says in verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, same thing I just told you, here's what the disciples' response is. It says, if such is the case of a man with a woman, it is better not to marry. Do you think they understood what he was saying? They go, if you can't divorce and if you can't remarry, it's better you just never to marry to begin with. And then this is what Jesus says. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. All I know, you say, how do I work that out? I don't know, we love you, we'll work it out together. All I know is that God says that there's no temptation taking you, but such is the common to man, and God will give a way of escape for you in that temptation. That he will give you mercy and he will give you grace to your heart and you will be able to live the life in which God has ultimately called you to. God will forgive you. God will restore you. He loves you. He will bless your remarriage. But let me give you one final warning. Let us not be presumptuous upon the grace of God. For us to sit back and for you to sit there and to say, I know this is wrong to marry this person. I know it's wrong, but God will forgive us. I'm highly fearful for you. Because that is not the heart of a true believer. A true believer runs from sin, wants nothing to do with it. But if you sit and say, I will do this because I know his grace is sufficient for me, that I will do it, then I will immediately respond and say, I'm sorry. It's just not the heart of a believer. You need to check to see if you're really in the faith or not. Because the faith loves what God loves and he hates what God hates. I pray that this has been preached with with grace and love, and you're not a second-class citizen. You're a believer and a child of God. Let's pray, Jesus. We love you. We thank you. God, I pray.